Welcome to The Human Perspective, a podcast with the internationally recognized badass disability rights activist, Judy Human. This episode, Judy interviews Ryan Haddad. Ryan is an actor, playwright, and autobiographical performer. Currently, he is preparing for his off-Broadway playwriting debut with his autobiographical play, Dark Disabled Stories. It will be playing at the Public Theater in New York City from February 28th to March 26th. You can find more information and where to buy tickets in the description of this episode. Enjoy learning more about this upcoming show and Ryan's other work in this conversation with him and Judy. The Human Perspective is produced by me, Kylie Miller, and Judy Human. So let's roll up, lay down, dance around, whatever makes you feel best, and let's meet this episode's guest. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Human Perspective. Today, we're going to be speaking with Ryan Haddad. I am so excited about this. Hi, Ryan. How are you? Hi, Judy. I'm fabulous and so thrilled to be here. Thank you for having me. Last year, Kylie and I had the privilege of going to the Woolly Mammoth Theater here in Washington, D.C. to see you in your performance, Hi, Are You Single? And we had such a fantastic time. The show was amazing. And what I really loved about it is the audience's response. It was such an engaging performance. So when we finished... Um, and I had the opportunity to come over and meet you. You were so friendly and so warm. It was just a great opportunity. So I'm interested in knowing when and why did you begin to become involved in theater? Oh, I've been involved in theater since I didn't even know what a theater was. I was crawling around the living room at two and three years old and acting out Disney princess movies by myself in the living room. And I had never seen a stage. I had never, I'd never been in a theater before. All I had seen was a TV special called Barney Live in New York City, in which like Barney and his friends were on Broadway. And I thought, oh my God, I want to do that. And it wasn't a musical, it wasn't a play, but I knew I wanted to, I wanted to tell stories and I wanted to perform. And then I went from the living room alone to the living room with my family, I forced my family to put on plays with me, starting when I was five in the living room, then moving to the backyard, then the basement, and ultimately the stage of the community center. We did 10 plays in eight years, and we called it the Haddad Theater. And they are not actors, not a single one of them, but they did it for me because they loved me and they knew I needed some outlet. And, you know, after the third, fourth, fifth time, they started to have a lot of fun and they started to wait and go, well, when's the next one? What's the next one going to be? And it was a really wonderful, giantly loving gesture when we all have memories. I mean, we still sit at Thanksgiving and go, do you remember when we did Sorry, Wrong Number, you know, based on the radio play? And it's, you know, it's 15, 20 years later and they're still talking about it. So it's, that's really moving to me that I helped create memories that are powerful to everyone who experienced them. And intermittently, I was doing, you know, youth classes and, and theater. And I tell a story in one of my, uh, my cabaret, which, which is songs and personal memories, about a teacher who was doing really her best to try to help me succeed you know, I was a kid. I was a kid in Parma, Ohio. Nobody was trying to, you know, get to Hollywood or New York from Parma, Ohio. But she said, if you don't perform without your walker, you're never going to be cast in anything. And I've never forgotten that. And I emailed her about it once when I was like 16. And she was, oh, my God, I have no memory of that. Your memory is so different from mine. And I didn't mean to hurt you. And it was, you know, hurtful at the time, but looking back as a 31-year-old who is charging forward, you know, in show business, I realized why she said that, when she said that. There was no example, really, for people to look at in the late 90s and early 2000s and go, that's what a success can look like on television or on stage. So she was really trying to help via tough love. But I still walk with my walker. I've never let go of the walker, much to many people's chagrin. 
you know, physical therapists and teachers in elementary school, once they got me comfortable with it and proficient in walking with the walker, oh, the next step is a crutch and the next step is a cane. And then you're going to let go of doing nothing. And I can walk independently in my own apartment. I don't use the walker here, but I never really followed the benchmarks in the public school system that I was supposed to follow. And I just said, well, this is what I want to do. And the same is true for the on stage. Okay, like, if you don't want my walker in your play, I guess you're going to go with somebody else. Like, have fun, because you're not going to get me to suddenly, like, start running laps. That's never going to happen. So, <laughs> you know, after my family said, we're done, we've had enough, I continued through uh, high school, middle school, and then into college. And when I was in college, I met a, a wonderful solo performer named Tim Miller came to do a guest week residency at my school. Where did you go to school? Ohio Wesleyan University. Mm -hmm. And he came in my sophomore year to teach us about autobiographical performance. And I was sort of lamenting that even at this college where I was given a theater scholarship and they said that they were so thrilled to have me and couldn't wait for all the things I was going to do on the stage, they were boxing me in, they were pigeonholing me and they, and they weren't seeing what I had to offer because they weren't sure how to put the walker inside their period piece or whatever it was and all of that. And I was saying that to Tim and he was the one who said, you know, you don't have to wait for them. I mean, I was staring at my professors and like giving this this performance and talking about them, being like, come on, wake up. And he was the one who said, you're just fabulous on your own, talking about yourself and your own life. You can play yourself on stage. You can write basically personal essay on stage and tell it to the audience as a solo piece or solo play. and you should be doing this. You should be doing what I've done for the last 30 years. And at the time I laughed at him and said, that's absurd. And then within a year or two, I realized that he was probably right and that I was really good at it. And that's how the play that you saw, Hire You Single, and much of my subsequent work has come to be thanks to Tim Miller telling me not to wait, don't wait. I think, you know, we've seen in theater over the years, Hamilton being a good example and many others, that people are cast in roles where they don't look like, and now I'm not discussing disability, they don't look like the people they're portraying. Right. So today, theoretically, a crutch or a wheelchair or a walker should not be seen as something that's not authentic because things have so dramatically changed. And I've seen, you know, that you've done some television appearances. And I watched the piece that you did with Bull, and I'm sorry it's off the air because I really love that program. And I love, for the audience, Bull is a, was a television program, uh, which was based on a company that helped do selection for people on juries. Yeah. And Ryan was a, a prospective juror, and he was sitting down. So in the piece that I saw, you didn't even know that you had a disability. That's right. Are you taking on other roles like in television where your disability is or isn't a part of it? That's a fascinating question. So I've done, you know, four or five, six things. I, I don't know. I, it's hard to, to remember. But the very first thing was Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. And it was specific. To, they were looking for a disabled person, a disabled man. And I remember meeting a friend of mine now, Scott Barton, in the waiting room. And Scott is probably 20, 30 years older than me, a different disability. And that was my first TV audition. And I remember going, oh, they're not like looking for like a type, you know, 20s, gay, whatever it was. I don't know. I was thinking like, oh, they're looking for this very specific kind of disabled person. And because it was my first TV audition, I realized like, no, they just, their literal criteria is disabled man. Like any disabled man was there and we all auditioned no matter what 
the disability was, no matter what, what our appearance was or what our age was. And I got that one. It was specific to disability. And that is one way to go. Or you have these other things that pop up that have nothing to do with disability at all. And that is, in my experience, I can't speak to everyone's experience, but I met a casting executive formerly of CBS, Lucy Cavallo, and she was the vice president of casting in Los Angeles. And she met me at the Williamstown Theater Festival and saw me do a monologue from my show, from Hire You Single, and was like, you wrote that? She was, first of all, probably fascinated that somebody went and did an audition for the CBS executive talking about blowjobs, but that is what I did. And it made an impression. And she immediately set me up with her counterpart in New York and said, they have, you have to meet the casting people in New York. And they were just gung-ho about getting me work. And they got me Bull and Madam Secretary within two or three months of each other. And both of those parts had nothing to do with my being disabled. They were also fairly small. Like if you if you were just watching it, you wouldn't have gone, who is that guy? I mean, it's inconsequential to the story completely. But those network residual checks like still come to this day. Like people watch those shows all the time. So it was very helpful financially to get me on my feet when I decided to quit my day job and try to be freelance. Well, thank goodness for Lucy finding me these two roles and finding me my representative, my manager, who is based in L.A. and puts me forward for a lot of different kinds of things, many of which are not disability specific because, frankly, there's not enough material to be consistently auditioning for roles that are disability specific. We're not, there are not enough stories being written that, you know, I can audition all the time for those kinds of parts. So he puts me forward for a lot of things that aren't disability related. But I will tell you that I've booked two major TV projects. One is what I'm probably best known for at this time is, is the politician, a Ryan Murphy series on Netflix. And that was very specific. That was a uh, young man with cerebral palsy who can play high school. That was very specific. And because they said cerebral palsy and because it was a specific age range, I was sort of in the pocket to be able to audition and book that part. And then the next thing is a miniseries for FX. The title right now is Retreat. And it is by Britt Marling and Zal Batmanglish, who wrote the OA, wrote and directed the OA. And that was also disability specific. So what I found is I'm very fortunate to have a manager who really believes in me and what I'm able to do and doesn't want me to be limited to only disabled parts. But when I end up booking the role, it usually is a role that is specific to disability. And what that tells me is he's ready and he believes in me. The casting directors are ready and they're excited to see my tapes and auditions and sometimes send them on to the powers that be. But often the creatives or the executives will encounter a disabled actor and go, but that isn't what I wrote. You know, oh, but that changes the story. And some of these I'm probably not right for. And I'm not only saying that it's because of my disability, but I get a lot more traction when the role is asking for disability than when it's not. So I would love, and I know that all of my performing theater, film, TV friends and colleagues would love the opportunity to not only audition for these roles that aren't written to be disabled, that are just the nerdy tech guy or the uh, love interest or the brother or the sibling or the cousin or whatever, the neighbor, like any of these could be any of us. But the first hurdle is getting the opportunity to audition for those parts when they're not asking for disability. And then the next hurdle is actually booking the role. And that's still a, a fight that needs to be continually fought. What I like is that there is a growing number of people like yourself, I'm not saying replicas of you, but who have disabilities and who are very talented in numerous areas in theater and film, et cetera, who are beginning to slowly make it and whose voices, like what you've been discussing, are articulating the fact that disabled people should not have to play 
only disabled roles and that we should be able to play both roles that are specifically for a character who has a disability and not. I'd like to dig in a little bit more deeply. The way I'm hearing your story is you were really very fortunate that you had a family that was a playful family. Mm -hmm. And they engaged with you. Do you have other siblings? Yeah, I have two older brothers, both, you know, non-disabled athletes, straight boys, popular, smart. They were the quintessential what one is meant to be in a Midwestern high school setting. So I sort of always had them to look up to because they were so much older than me, seven and nine years older. They also like helped my parents in the sort of raising of me. They were more like role models, mentors, babysitters than they were like, we weren't playing with blocks together, you know, that kind of stuff. And I, you know, grew up to be nothing like them, but still to this day, we'll call them for advice. And they worked really hard to try to not only understand who I am as a, a gay person, but also understand you know, what it is to be in show business. I made a choice that was like unconventional and not what our family was taught that one should do. That, you know, you stay in Ohio, you get a good job, you you have consistent income and, you know, start a family. And that, that's what they have done. And I didn't, and I haven't, but they're both greatly supportive of me in a variety of ways. And I, I love them very much. Their names are Joe and Bobby. When did you start going to school? Were you five? Five, uh, uh, interesting question. I started preschool at, I think, three to four. I turned three in January, and then I would have started in the fall. So three to four, four to five. And that would have typically been when you then would go on to kindergarten. But they were planning to do a leg surgery, my first leg surgery, you know, I'm not one of those children with cerebral palsy who had 10 surgeries or, you know, did everything they could to try to uh, make it better or, or erase it. Frankly, I don't want to, I don't, that's not fair to say, but because you can't erase it no matter what you do. Um, my father specifically was, was more conservative. And I think he thought, you know, he's fine. There's nothing wrong with, him as he is. So why are we going to cut him open 50,000 times? Like, what are we trying to achieve here? But I did do the one, the big one, when I was five, and it was a hamstring and heel cord release. And they timed it in the summer. And so, I mean, that was really the reason that I then repeated preschool a third time. They didn't know what the recovery was going to be like. But I remember that it was posed to me. My dad is a very funny character. And I've, I've written about both my parents and several things. He framed it to me as I was like playing with toys in the preschool room and they were meeting with the teachers. He said, hey, Ryan, do you want to go to kindergarten or do you want to play with toys for another year? And what is a child going to say to that? So I, of course I said, I want to play with toys. But looking back now, I know it was really because of the surgery and he was just trying to get me to sort of consent in a way that I would understand. And he was probably right, because if I had gone to a new school with a new set of kids and been moving slower and still with pain and weight in my legs, then it wouldn't have totally changed the trajectory of my academic experience. So kindergarten was, I was actually six and a half. And then that meant that when I graduated high school and started college, I was 19 and a half. How many plays? do you think you were performing with your family? And were they written scripts? Were you writing scripts at that young age? It's very fun. It's quite funny because we did 10 in total. I know that because they were very big events in my life and I counted everyone. And at the end, we memorialized and we knew it was the last one. 10 was the last. So everybody who'd ever been in one of the plays came on stage and took a big picture. I mean, we were literally on the stage in the community center and we did an adaptation of Annie called Andy in which I played Andy. So I didn't really write scripts as much as I took something that I loved and I morphed it and changed it and some would say butchered it to meet the needs of 
who was available to me in the family, who could do certain roles, and also often to make myself the star. Not every single time. There were several that I was not the star. But of course, playing Andy and singing The Sun Will Come Out Tomorrow at 13 with braces not only on my legs, but on my teeth, that was the goal in that instance. In the very beginning, because I was five, I didn't know how to write at all. I didn't know how to read. I couldn't, there was no way I could write a script. But the first three were like Goldilocks. uh, No, the first one was Snow White, then Goldilocks, and then Cinderella. So I basically prayed and hoped that everybody in the family just knew the story and could act it out like an improv style. But by the time we got to Cinderella, I was obsessed. I don't know if you remember there was a a TV version of the musical Cinderella with Brandy and Whitney Houston and Bernadette Peters and Whitney Goldberg. And that was how I knew, met all those people for the first time, except for Whoopi Goldberg, who I'd been loving since Sister Act 2. Not Sister Act 1, Sister Act 2. I love them both. I know, know, but I, I, okay. So that was an instance where I really wanted to be like the movie as much as I could, even though we only used one song and not the whole score. And I have this aunt and uncle, this great aunt and uncle. He has passed away, Uncle Charlie Sr., but Aunt Joan is still still with us. And they are big, big hams. Like they saw that we were doing these plays in the living room and they said, what are you going to put us in? So the first time was Cinderella. And they knew that it was inspired by this TV movie. So they sat down and wrote out every line. And I'm telling you, these people are in their, like their early 70s at the time. And they're sitting there and they're writing it out. And so they wrote down all of their lines, but they didn't write down anybody else's lines. And they didn't realize that when we got to the backyard, that nobody else would have done this exercise. So they're there with their partial scripts on notepads reading their lines and then just waiting for other people to respond. And it was a really wild experience and a great memory for us. Very funny. And I'm six years old going, these people are trying to steal the show. They're trying to steal the show from me. But we had so much fun. And um, Aunt Joan and Uncle Charlie continued to, you know, be in the plays, as has the, the whole family. There was really no telling me that I couldn't like as much as they would have wanted me to study business and theater or, you know, pre-med and theater, they knew that like, I wasn't going to do that. I'm a writer and a performer and I'm going to do those things and we're going to see what happens. So no one really ever said like, no, you cannot move to New York or no, you can't major in theater. I give my parents a lot of credit too, because of course I do. I mean, I love them so much and they're, There's always sometimes been a push and pull of what's practical. Do you really want to quit your day job? Do you mean you you have a salary and you want to quit it just to like imagine that you're going to do acting? Like, what do you mean? You move to New York and you have a job. You're going to quit the job? Like those conversations are never easy. But ultimately, they have always supported me, even back then, to even say, we're going to have the whole family over. And we're going to put on a play in the living room. We're going to put on a play in the backyard. They had to consent to those things, you know, and they had to then feed everybody. You didn't just come over to somebody's house and and just sit there and play a game. Like they had to make the food and they had to do all the hosting. What's your family's background? We are um, Lebanese American. So you have great food. It's great food. It's great food. <laughs> but, you know, Cinderella was Memorial Day 1998. So that was hot dogs and hamburgers in the backyard. <laughs> when did you start writing plays? I mean, there were a couple instances where of the 10 that I like wrote sequels to things. Like I wrote a sequel to Goldilocks and I wrote a sequel to Sorry, Wrong Number. The answer to your question, though, I would say is In college, there was a playwriting class where we had to write short 10-minute plays, two of them. And that was the first time that I really did it. They weren't very good because I was trying to either write about me or my family and fictionalize a scenario that was real. And I'm not very good at fiction. I know that I'm better at either stories that are 
mine, of course, but then also stories that are just about real people and real ex events. It's easier to draw from real life for me. And that's what I was doing in that first playwriting class, but I wasn't so good at, but I'm gonna make it this person instead of that person. I wasn't so good at changing stuff around. So the veil of fiction was like, you know, poorly, it didn't, I wasn't good at hiding. I wasn't good at hiding the truth as much. And then the first real play is the play that you saw. The first legitimate professional play started as my senior capstone. Hire You Single was done first in my studio black box in college. Uh, senior year, I was 23 and I'm 31 and I still go around and do that play wherever they'll have me. And I'm so thrilled to be able to do it at Woolly Mammoth for you. I mean, it was one of the great honors of my life to get to perform for you. You know, you can't really tell from Crip Camp what your sense of humor is, whether you're a prude or whether you're, you know, have blue humor and, or and like to talk about sex. So I was watching you the whole time. And I was horrified. I said, oh, no, am I scandalizing Judy Human with all my talk of sex? And then, and then we met immediately after, and you were very kind and very generous with your praise. And I said, okay, okay. I was very truthful. I thank you. It was neither kind nor generous. That was truthful. I'm from Brooklyn. I'm truthful. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. It was a brilliant performance. And I think Kylie and I, together, we had this really joyful experience. It was really wonderful. You're about to launch your next performance. Yes. Dark Disabled Stories, which is being performed at the public theater. Can you give us a little bit of information on how that came about? And also, I'm wondering, um, did you do all the writing by yourself? Are you working with any other people? Yeah, would love to talk to you about it. I am so excited. This is my off-Broadway playwriting debut. The performance that you saw is my first play, Hire You Single, but it's never had a run in New York. It's been, you know, pop-ups here and there, one performance, two performance in a festival, but it's never been fully produced in the way that it was in Washington, D.C. So this is a big moment for me. Like, I've performed off-Broadway before as an actor in other people's work, but to be able to, to do it at the public theater, and I have to give credit the impetus for this show and the impetus for it at having life is a theater in Brooklyn called the Bushwick Star. And it's a small but very mighty and prolific in the hits that it turns out one after the other space that was renovated to become more accessible because they wanted to do my show. They, they said, what do we need to do? And then they made it accessible. And then the pandemic happened. And then the city said, you're going to have to go find another building. So they have now bought another building, but they're in the process of, it's not a renovation. They have to turn an existing, whatever it is, a warehouse, I'm not sure, into a theater. And they're not quite there yet. So the way the public came about is because the initial producing organization, the Bushwick Star, was going around to theaters and saying, we have this season of work, including Ryan's, where can we find a home for these individual pieces? And I have a long relationship with the public, several of their developmental programs. I've done Joe's Pub, I've done Under the Radar. So they said, oh my God, we, you know, we're a great fit, let's do it. So it's a co-production between the public and the Bushwick Star. I'm so grateful to both. I've done almost all of the writing. I'm not writing with other people per se, but there are two performers in this piece that are not me. It is an autobiographical monologue told from my point of view, but there are two other performers, Dickie Hartz and Alejandra Ospina, and both of them will share a story from their point of view at some point over the course of the 70 minutes. So those two stories are written in collaboration with the two of them. So I'm still sitting there typing words but the words are based on basically interviews that we do together and conversations that we have. And then I take something and I write what I think is a monologue in their voice. And then they say, no, not this, or yes, let's 
change this to that. And so it's really is a back and forth between the two of us. But my stories that are specifically me, uh, which is the bulk of the play, are written, of course, it is me. And my process for autobiographical monologue has been since I graduated that I would sit with a group of people, whether it's some kind of open mic or just a very informal like devising presentation of my own work. And in front of an audience, I would get up there with a post-it note or something. And these are the six stories that I want to tell. And I would just tell them from beginning to end. And I would sit there with my iPhone and hit record. And that's the very first draft. And that is not what you're going to see at the public theater. But the reason I do that is so that you get the cadence of my voice, so that you hear when I do a run-on sentence that starts but doesn't complete and goes on to something else. I want it to sound like I'm really talking to you. And I know that if I just sit there and write a monologue, different than writing dialogue, which I also do. But if I'm sitting there and writing a monologue, typing, typing, it's going to sound like I've written a book. And that's not what I want it to be like when I perform. So what I just described, that improvisational sharing, happened twice in the fall of 2017, September and December. The first time I never, I didn't record it, which I will regret as long as I live. And then the second time I did record it, it was a great recording. I had drank a little Prosecco. The audience had also had several drinks. So we were really feeding off of each other and there's a lot of laughter. And that's how the show was born. It's just a series of stories about everyday encounters in New York City, mostly. There's one story that's in Ohio, but the rest of them are in New York. And you have seen How Are You Single? And I would say that the difference between the stories in those shows are that in How Are You Single, I'm very hungry for companionship and a boyfriend. So I enter spaces trying to interact with other humans, trying to get a guy's attention and maybe spark something, whether it's a date or a hookup or a romance, what, what have you. And there are certainly there a share of, of stories about boys in Dark Disabled Stories. Of course, there are at least four stories about trying to have trysts with men. But the other stories are just like, I'm getting on a bus or I'm walking down the street and a neighbor decides to talk to me. And what's so interesting is that at least in scenarios like when I'm walking into a gay bar and I'm hoping to meet someone, I know that I have to be like on, like I know that I'm trying to make an impression. And so I want human interaction. But as you know, I'm sure more than anyone, sometimes you're just like trying to go about your day and you don't actually want to talk to people. I live in New York City. We don't want to talk to strangers. Like we don't want to talk on the bus or the subway, or on the sidewalk. And it's one thing to engage in a conversation, but another thing when a person sees your walker and decides, let's talk about it, you know? And and I'm so sorry, but I was just going to the grocery store. Like, I don't really need to talk about my cerebral palsy right now. This has nothing to do with the grocery store. So I would say half the stories are about men, and that's a through line in much of my work. But then half the stories are just about total strangers who turn a very everyday average encounter into a stage-worthy event because of their absurdity or my absurdity toward them or whatever it, whatever it is. And uh, I think that the disabled audience will find things very, very relatable. And I think that the non-disabled audience will find things shocking and surprising. But I hope that those people who are shocked and surprised will scan through their own memories in their head and go, have I ever done that to a disabled person before? Have I ever spoken, you know, and vomited crap out of my mouth just because I thought I was saying the right thing or doing the right thing? You know, that's dark disabled stories. So I'm laughing because I think I'm an anomaly. And by that, I mean, for some reason, I have always been willing to answer people's questions. And definitely, I've been in an elevator with a dear friend where someone got on and started asking questions about disability. And I know that she almost ate them alive. 
And I've always been, and truthfully not being critical at all of the way you're handling it. And I think what's going to happen is your audience is both going to laugh. The disabled people are going to laugh for one reason. And the non-disabled people will probably be a second or a millisecond behind in their laughter, thinking as you were just saying, have I ever done that? I mean, while I'll answer people's questions, I do nonetheless think it's completely weird. (laughs) But the way I've always felt is, given how weird so many non-disabled people are around disability, that if I don't answer their question, then they're not going to start engaging on a level that we want them to engage in. Yeah. But what I like about what you're doing is we're representing the diversity of our community. And most people, when they're going to the store, don't want to be asked certain kinds of questions, except did you buy the apples and how did they look? Yeah. You know, things like that. So I I realize that I am different. No, and I, I look, I would say that that's one specific story in the play where it's just a stranger who decides that they're going to talk to me. But it's also in a bigger way about all of these people are strangers. And what are the assumptions that I make about them? And what are the assumptions that they make about me? What I find exciting is that at least half, if not more, of the stories don't have anything to do with disability at all. Right. But there is always the ingredient because here I am and I'm a disabled person. And the events that unfold become about disability in a way that like that might not be what the man on the date is thinking or what the man in the hookup is is intending to happen. But there's no way that in certain scenarios, I'm not going to be thinking a lot about my physical safety, about my vulnerability. And I don't walk around thinking that I'm a vulnerable person. And that's one of the major conflicts of the play is I just think I'm invincible all the time. And then because I interact with these strangers who see me in a way that's completely different from the way I see myself, I realize, oh my God, well, I have to be a little more guarded. I have to be a little more careful because for better or worse, I may think that my disability doesn't change anything about me, but they do. And the way they interact with me is you know, because of the assumptions they're making about the, my way of moving through the world and I need to protect myself. So that's when it gets really dark. It's when we're starting to talk about safety and being taken advantage of and trying to unpack, well, why did this happen? On the outside, I don't think that this or that or this has anything to do with my being disabled, but there's no way to read that story or say that story out loud without realizing why would this stranger have chosen me to have this interaction? And the reason then becomes, oh, oh, ah, there's no world in which I step out of this apartment and go, I'm not disabled today. Like, of course, I'm always disabled. But when a stranger sort of has to, through their words or actions, like it's a slap in the face when it's like, oh, oh, I see. They only see me as that. They only see me as disabled. Mm, Well, that's not how I was entering the exchange. That's what's really complicated and really messy. And it's a play in which there's an emotional build. There's not a plot. They're all disparate stories in which they each have a beginning, middle, and an end. And then we move on. And then we move on. And then we move on. But by the end, I can promise you the laughter is going to fade away. It's not an easy play. It's darker and edgier than much of my other work. And I'm excited about the thought-provoking engagement that the audience, both disabled and not, is going to experience. I'm really looking forward to seeing it in New York. One of the things that I really like about your work is the authenticity of it. I don't do theater as you do, but I do a lot of public speaking. Mm. The similarity in as much as you may get the same questions over and over again from people who didn't know the other people who asked similar questions. But for me, over the last couple of years, I find that I'm digging more deeply into the answers. And really, when you're doing that, which I think is what you're discussing now, you really look at yourself both as how you see yourself and then realize how other people see you. Yeah. And that can be 
on a regular basis, very painful and shocking. Also, sometimes like I have a mask on and my mask may not be showing how I really feel for many, many reasons. But, you know, like you play the game. Yeah. But I wanted to ask you, you put a lot of emphasis in this next production and with public theater on the uh, experience of a disabled person with many different types of disabilities being able to enter the theater and partake of the whole performance. Yes. Accessibility features that you have just built in are quite unique. So I'm wondering, were you the one who came forward with the proposal of how to do it? How did the theater react? And is this something that the theater may be taking on for other productions to ensure that they are as universally accessible as I think you're trying to make this next production be? Thank you for asking, because that's what I wanted to share with you as well. This is a production that is going to have uh, American Sign Language captioning and audio description at every performance. I, in collaboration with my director, Jordan Fine, who is fabulous and queer, but not a disabled person, has spent a lot of time over the pandemic. We've been developing this together since 2019. I've been developing it since 2017. And right up until you know, in the beginnings of COVID, so I would say 2020, it was meant to be a solo play. Like it was meant to be just like what you saw. And we just kept saying, well, what does it look like? And where am I sitting? And what am I standing? And what is, what's the set look like? We kept talking about the set. We were on Zoom together. We just, every week during 2020, we were on Zoom, chitting and chatting. And we both together had this kind of explosion of we keep talking about the set, like, why is the set so important? And we realized that the design of the play could and should integrate access. So captioning as projections was the first thing that we thought of. The next thing was audio description. And I, I've worked with Alejandro Ospina before, specifically as an audio describer. And so I was interested in her. And so we brought her in for two Zoom workshops of it. And we realized that like her role is primarily to audio describe what happens, but we were sitting on Zoom. So there wasn't much to audio describe. And we had a lot of conversations and we realized that her point of view as a woman with cerebral palsy in a power wheelchair is very different than my point of view. So that is why she has, you know, one monologue to herself in the piece. And she will still, from beginning to end, be live audio describing, but she's also going to talk about a, an experience, transportation experience, as a power chair user. And then the third one was the ASL. And we initially were like, well, the way to do that is to have an interpreter at every performance. And very quickly, I think still inside of 2020, we realized, oh, you know what would be more interesting and harder to do in terms of how is this going to function is to have a deaf actor signing the performance, which is not an interpreter at all because he can't hear anything that I'm saying. He's not interpreting. So what he's doing is playing Ryan simultaneously. So that is what we mean when we have all these things, but two of the three the only thing that's not a person is captioning. That is designed by our wonderful projection designer, Cameron Neal. But Alejandra, a performer, is going to be doing the audio description. And Dickie, a performer, is going to be playing Ryan in ASL. And we will have moments together of turning to each other and looking at each other and interacting. He's probably going to have move around the stage more than I do because he doesn't have cerebral palsy, but he's going to tell these stories in first person as though he is me. And then later in the show, we'll then step out and remind us, remember, I'm not an interpreter. I'm an actor. I'm Dickie and I've been playing Ryan. And I want to talk to you a little bit about what it is to be a deaf gay man. And so I'm very excited because I have two scene partners, even though the DNA is still me doing first-person confessional autobiography, there are two others with me on stage, and it's going to be really special. So we brought that concept to, I would say, ostensibly the public theater. The Bushwick Star 
has always been on board with access measures, but when the Bushwick Star said, we wanna do this play, they were talking about another Ryan-headed solo piece. And what you're not getting is a Ryan-headed solo piece. In terms of personnel and access supports and interpreters, there are still interpreters all the time because we have a deaf performer, of course. All of that takes the budget of a solo show that would have been this big and makes it big, 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 big. The budget has like doubled in size. And I would say the following, it's a major experiment and the public is certainly watching the experience that we're about to embark on together. And they're very aware of the need for access in performance. And they do offer those things. Typically during the run of a show, they will offer captioning ASL and audio description on separate nights once or twice, you know, and that's what most theaters do. And some don't do it at all. So I'm hoping that like this not only impacts the public and their access measures, but also other theaters will take notice and say, this is interesting. And maybe if we're never doing this at all, if we're at zero accessible performances, we can increase to, you know, more than one or two, maybe three or four or four and five kind of thing. These measures are baked into the design of the piece and the casting of the piece. The people who are providing access are performers themselves. So what I would say is, you know, could another play do everything that we're doing after the fact? Could they decide that they want to do all three of these things, but they have their cast and they have their design already done? Mm, that's going to be a little harder and it's going to be a lot more expensive. And I'm going to be honest with you, Judy, because I love you and I love the, the audience that you have. You know, I don't even know that I can go backwards with all of my other plays mm -hmm. and do this every single time. I think that's a very intense expectation for me to embark as an artist that I can do this all the time. <laughs> but this is also a learning experience for me. And I don't think that I can go from this to nothing. I can't go backwards to nothing. But I'm learning, even in this process, that some people would prefer a method where they could turn off the captions or they wouldn't have to hear the audio description. What we're doing is open captioning, open audio description. And for some people, their preference would be not to have that. And so maybe the next time, I do a production of a different piece. We have an offering, but that offering isn't quite the same as this. So it's an experiment. And I think there's no way that we're going to get everything right. And I'm saying that now because we're going to run for a month and we don't know who's going to walk through the door or, or roll through the door. And we need to be open to everyone and their needs and all of that. But we're, we're making a, a damn exciting attempt to be as inclusive and accessible as possible. And I'm excited to talk with you about how it goes when it's over. Yes. And I also want to say that I'm glad I asked you the question so you could really get quite explicit about what you're doing and why you're doing it and how you're doing it. And I completely understand that this is working for the production that you're doing for a variety of reasons and may well not be and likely not be something that can be replicated over and over again. However. For me, the broadest component of what you are doing is, and there are other ways of doing it, is moving away from, there are certain nights that you can come for see a performance. And I think what you're doing is really showing different options for different types of productions. We're going to have to end. I'm sorry. We need to end, but I can't wait to see you. What's your final words for an aspiring disabled person? wanting to go into theater. Just keep going. There are going to be a lot of people who tell you no, and there's going to be a lot of rejection, and there's going to be a lot of twists and turns and growth inside you and in yourself. What I set out to do when I was a child was be a musical theater star on Broadway. Guess what? That's not happening. Not happening yet. Doesn't mean it could never happen. But you could never have told me when I was 11 years old that the way I'm, I have carved my path in this business would be how I did it. So you have to be open to every 
avenue that could move you forward and what you want when you're 22 might be different than what you want when you're 32 or 40 and that is fine but keep going while it is serving you and find the people the places and the kinds of work that allow you to thrive and to be your very best and challenge you and make you better because we have to keep evolving as artists. And, you know, there are people who are in show business for 40, 50, 60 years. Look at somebody like Betty White. You can be in this business for a long time, but you're not going to be in this business a long time if all you do is the same thing over and over and over and over. So you have to be open to growth and change and evolution. Thank you, Ryan Haddad. Thank you, Judy Human. And we'll put information up so that people will uh, know where the public theater is and the dates that the performance is going to go on and uh, to continue to follow your great work. Okay. I will see you soon. Much love. Much love to you. Now it's time for Ask Judy, a segment where Judy answers questions sent in by listeners. For 2023, Judy and I would love to hear from more of our listeners. So we're asking you all to participate in Ask Judy in a new way. We're now accepting voice memos with comments and questions to Judy that will be played right here on The Human Perspective. If you're interested in sending us yours, please email it to media at judithhuman.com. Thanks for tuning in to The Human Perspective. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review our show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also follow Judy on Twitter at Judith Human and on Instagram and Facebook at The Human Perspective. If you want to find out more information about this episode's guest or resources relating to the discussion, check out the description of this episode or visit judithhuman.com. You can also find a shortened video version of this interview on Judy's YouTube channel, dropping a week after this podcast is published. Otherwise, be sure to check back every other Wednesday for a new podcast episode. The intro music for The Human Perspective is Dragon, which is produced and performed by Lachi, Yontero, and Warren. The outro music is I Wait by Galen Lee.